As most of you know, we have been studying through the epistles Paul wrote to Timothy and Titus as our uh, series continues through the year, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, and we're just sort of in the beginning of that in chapter 4 of 1st Timothy. Uh, the general heading of our uh, theme this year is godliness or training ourselves toward godliness and there are a number of occasions when in these epistles the subject of godliness is, uh, is at the forefront the idea of being devoted to God being willing to serve God under all circumstances uh, the apostle's purpose in writing these letters particularly in First and Second Timothy uh, is to uh, focus on the responsibilities of godly character of the evangelist or the preacher uh, so Paul is mentoring Timothy uh, in the things that he writes here and getting him prepared to be able to do the job that God is going to, uh, is going to task him with and does task him with in preaching the gospel. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit this morning as we look at this about Timothy because I think he is a central character in understanding the passage I want to focus on this morning. Timothy was one of the best known of Paul's companions. We recognize that and we're familiar with maybe Timothy in many different regards. He is described as a fellow laborer with Paul. Paul even describes him as, uh, as his own son in the faith. It gives us the uh, implication that Paul, that, uh, Paul was uh, involved in his own conversion. Uh, but Timothy was a resident of Lystra, or possibly Derby, and Paul met him on his first trip missionary journey in Acts chapter 14 uh, and sort of uh, invited him to go along, or he recruited Timothy to be his companion. What we know about Timothy as a whole life is somewhat, I, su- I suppose, habitable. We don't know a lot about Timothy's life before or even necessarily all the things we might like to know about, his, about the period of the New Testament. But he was taught the scriptures by his Jewish mother and grandmother, uh, and Paul mentions that. His father was a Greek. Um, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, it gives us that information, and Paul even tells us in his writings that because his father was a Greek, he was very willing to circumcise Timothy at the beginning of the ministry so that Timothy uh, would be accepted by the Jewish audience. It also tells us that Timothy was a person of good reputation, uh, that he was well spoken of by the brethren at Lystra and Iconium, uh, and that in that sense he made a perfect uh, individual to accompany uh, Paul on his journeys. He knew the Old Testament scriptures, he was dedicated to God, he had a good reputation. He is named in the introduction of several of Paul's writings uh, in 2 Timothy, in 2, in 2 Corinthians, and Philippians, Colossians, and 1 Thessalonians. So the name Timothy comes up often in Paul's writing to the churches. For that reason, I would, I would necessarily suggest that he was well known among the brethren whom Paul was writing to, both among the Jews and also among those uh, Gentile congregations. It even tells us that Timothy was with Paul in his imprisonment in Rome at the end of the New Testament writing. So we might say that Timothy was Paul's protege, that he was someone who was going to follow in Paul's steps in preaching the gospel. And what it tells us in this, and and, and what we mentioned a couple of times in the text of these two epistles, that Paul writes to Timothy as his protege. He's writing him so that he'll know, he says, how to do the work of evangelist and to fulfill his ministry. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, Paul says to Timothy, I'm writing to you so you might know how to conduct yourself in, in the household of God. And what we've looked at so far is that many of the things that Paul says to this young man have to do not only with his own life, but as well to the life of the congregation. So he's talked about responsibilities of those who would be appointed leaders, implying to us that Timothy would be involved 
in that process. The aspect of how men are to pray with holy hands, that they are to, that women are to adorn themselves in modest apparel, that individuals are to be of a certain character in order to lead the congregation, that they are to be godly characters. Now we look at that from the standpoint of the general context of these epistles. We might come away with the idea, well, yeah, I'm not going to be a preacher, so what's that to me? That I don't plan on being an evangelist. I'm not going to follow in Paul's footsteps in that regard. So what's the, is there anything in this that's for me? And we'd be amiss to believe that there's nothing in these epistles that even says, that's even said specifically about Timothy's personal responsibility that's not applicable to ourselves. And I believe that, that, that really uh, comes into view here uh, in terms of the passage I want us to look at this morning. And that's 1 Timothy chapter 4 in verse 12. Paul said to Timothy, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word and conduct, in love and spirit and faith, in purity. Now, when you think about being a Christian, about living the Christian life, about godliness itself, do we picture ourselves as being examples? Do we picture ourselves as being individuals that others are to look up to, that others would view the idea of following in our footsteps? Paul wants Timothy and instructs Timothy to be an example to other believers. And I want to talk about a little bit about what that means and how we are to see that as something not just that was addressed to this young evangelist, but in principle is very much applicable to ourselves. But Paul begins by telling Timothy, let no one despise your youth. Well, how old was Timothy when he received this letter? Was he a teenager? Probably not. Most, most would suggest that verse uh, in the use of the term youth here in terms of the chronology of the book, that Timothy wasn't a really young man. The word youth, the Greek word for youth or youthfulness, neotes, is, was used to describe the rich young ruler uh, in Mark chapter 10. And so we call him the rich young ruler because that word is used to describe him. According to Jewish culture, a man was considered a youth in the use of this particular word until about the age of 40. So that, you see, all you guys and gals that are not 40 yet, you're still young in terms of the biblical terminology. So when we think about Timothy, it says that for him not to despise his youth, we can picture Timothy, and most do, picture Timothy uh, as a man in his middle thir- early to middle 30s, the time in which Paul's writing to him. Could Timothy's age get in the way of him preaching the gospel. I remember when I started preaching, when I thought, I thought, I thought, by the time I was thirty, I had that thing pretty, I had it pretty much under control. That this passage probably really didn't apply to me much because I wasn't young anymore. Well, I guess typically in terms of what the Bible teaches, I was in my early thirties because Timothy was. But there's more to it than just the chronological age here. I believe that's involved in this. There was a sense in which Timothy's position as a young man as a teacher or as an instructor, might very well be an obstacle. And what Paul tells Timothy here is, let no man despise your youth. Do not allow anyone to dismiss you or what you say because of your age. The original word for despise, kataphoneo, is a combination of the word down, prefix down, kata, and phoneo, which means mind. And so what the word means here is to look down with your mind on someone to discount them or dismiss them as a result of their age. 
So you despise someone by thinking that they really don't matter. By thinking that person's insignificant, that what he's saying doesn't really matter, and therefore you despise them. It doesn't necessarily mean the idea of hate. It can simply mean that you simply do not regard them, or you think of them lightly in terms of what they're saying or what they're doing. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, the word is used to describe uh, the aspect of uh, our approach to God. Do, not, do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing the kindness of God leads you to repentance? To not give, think, give, not give something serious thought, just consider it in a trivial way, is the meaning of this word despise. Paul was concerned about that for Timothy. In fact, if we look in 1 Timothy chapter 16, the end of that book, he encourages the Corinthians to not despise Timothy. He says it again. So there may have been a tendency because of Timothy's age for others who were listening to him to think, wow, he's a young guy. He doesn't really know what he's saying. In the sense in which that's true. You know, gray hair has its perks, right? Uh, you get to eat off the back of the menu. Uh, if you have gray hair or if you're you, if you, the older that you are, you might get a discount on your car insurance. Well, one of the perks of gray hair, to some extent, is, is it shows individuals that you might be a little more experienced in life and therefore they'll give you a little bit greater credibility than someone who's real young. A young person could be viewed as inexperienced and many times those who are older are unwilling in any way to be instructed by someone that's young. You've been on a job and they bring in this new person and he's your superintendent and he's 20 years your, your younger uh, and you think, well, how am I going to listen to this young person? I think about that often when I think about umpire training. When I used to go through umpire training, we'd have sessions where uh, we'd have folks that would come in and instruct us. And many of the instructors would be individuals right out of umpire school or maybe they were in minor leagues or even had major league umpires that would come and, and have a seminar for us. And here's all us old guys in the room and here's this young guy you know, in his 20s and he's going to tell us how to umpire. We've been doing this longer than he's been born. But you see, and sometimes that was a challenge for the older guys to listen to the younger guy because put a premium on the aspect of experience or we might dismiss the individual simply because they are young. Now think about in the context of teaching the gospel or preaching or teaching someone. Paul was giving Timothy an enormously difficult job. The passage is previous to this. He told them that he's going to rebuke those who are in sin. That he's going to even, you see, have to sometimes on occasion rebuke an elder. You do it in the right way and before witnesses, but if a person's in sin, he's telling Timothy, you have to be in, involved in this. In the aspect, you see, of instructing someone, correcting someone. You're going to talk about subjects that other people are going to have more experience in than his. How to handle your money, you see. How to live life as a, in a self-disciplined way and be in control of your passions. Who has more experience doing that, the older person or the younger person? How's that going to work for this young man to go and try to teach older people how to do this and give instructions about the role of men and women and talk to them about marriage? You see, that poses a difficult obstacle in the aspect of the person who's going to lead or teach. And so what Paul says to Timothy up front, do not allow anyone to discount you or dismiss you because you are a younger person. That is not based upon the aspect of your age or even your experience. The things that you're going to deliver come up from a higher source than that. And so he's putting Timothy in the right frame of mind to understand the authority by which he would teach and how he would approach others. Let me suggest this note as well as far as things that I get out of this text that 
somewhat are helpful to me. There's a point to be made about God's willingness to use a young person in a significant role in spiritual matters. Now, there's a sense in which you see sometimes young people are not qualified. If a person's going to lead the congregation, he needs to not be a novice, Paul tells Timothy. And so experience has something to do with the aspect of positions of leadership. But there are several occasions in Scripture where God would tell us, through the example that he's given, that he's willing to use a young person for very, in a very prominent role for very important lessons to be taught. Joseph was a teenager when he was in Egypt resisting, you see, the temptations of Potiphar's wife. When he was setting the example of faith and God was blessing him, he was just a young person. When David met Goliath, you see, in the valley, he was just a young person. In fact, that's what Goliath says to him. You're just a young guy. You're a, boy, you're a baby. What are you going to do? How'd that all turn out from the standpoint of David and Goliath? The young person was not, an advantage, was not at a disadvantage if that young person was faithful to God and serving God. If God was going to particularly use that young person for that very purpose for which, you see, he'd been uh, instructed. And we see that over and over again. Daniel, uh, you see, in the time in which he was a young person in Babylon, elevated, you see, uh, to the very highest level of the court, his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, teaching great lessons of dedication and of faith even to us. They were, those young people were beacons of godliness in a very dark society in which they lived, all by themselves serving God. And I suggest you, there are a lot of young people who are exactly in that position today. And older people need to be careful not to despise them or disdain them simply because they're young. They can be enormous, you see, useful tools in God's kingdom for expressing faith and showing godliness. To make sure that we're looking up to those to the good things about young people. Sometimes it's easy for us to talk about uh, about the, the, the problems of this generation uh, and the millennials or whatever the ex ex millennials or whatever. Every every generation has its own moniker now. Uh, we need to be careful that we don't get caught up in this generational gap of society as it applies to the aspect of the kingdom of God. So Paul tells Timothy, "Let no one despise your youth." Now, a question that comes to my mind in this was Paul concerned about what others thought of Timothy. When we think about what his job is going to be in making known the gospel and what even our job, even though we're not, many of us are not evangelists, of teaching others, does God want us to be concerned about what other people think about us? Or does he just want us to put that in the back of our mind and go ahead and do what God wants us to do anyway? Was Paul concerned about how Timothy would be received among the Jews? Well, yes, he was, because he circumcised Timothy for that very reason, did he not? So he did take into account that Timothy needed some credibility and therefore he was willing to do something that might very well be misunderstood in circumcising Timothy because he recognized the stigma of having a Greek father in a Jewish audience. And since circumcision had nothing to do with his salvation, Paul was displaying some pragmatism here in the aspect of circumcising Timothy even at an older, an older age so that it might improve his evangelistic environment and the efforts that he would have to teach the truth. Well, we have to recognize that there's no compromise of the truth here, and it became a real environment in which Paul should show clearly that he wasn't compromising the truth because he refused to circumcise Titus. But I want us to notice, in terms of looking at this question, that there's a sense in which Paul was concerned about what others thought about Timothy. And so that this admonition is included under that very concern that I want you to be able to be received by others. Don't let anybody despise your youth. But then you put that in conjunction with the other things that Paul says to this young man, and we recognize there's a sense in which Paul wanted Timothy to not be concerned at all about what others thought about him. 
But he would not to allow the opinions or the assessments of others to get in the way of preaching the truth. So he tells them to reprove and rebuke and preach the word. When? In season and out of season. When they want it and when they don't want it. You preach it. When they like what you're saying, when they don't like what you're saying. Because there are individuals out there that have itching ears. They're heaped to themselves teachers after after their own lust. And you must dismiss all of that and preach the word. And don't worry about what other people think of you. So there's a sense in which this question can be answered on both sides. But I, want, but I ask it for, the, for, for, for us understanding and being discerning to recognize that that same type of concern and lack of concern needs to be a part of our teaching as well. Certainly a part of the parameters of our character. That we do care, but we don't care about what others think about us. But we make Sessions that are like concessions in our life, things that do not impact our salvation, do not compromise the truth, so that the Word of God, the real important element, can be heard and be received. So when you think about Paul's statement to Timothy, do not allow anyone to despise your youth. How could how could Timothy do that? How does Timothy obey this command? Does he do it by saying, uh, you people that say that? You're just a bunch of old fuddy-duddies. You don't know anything. I'm smarter than you are. I'm not going to think about... I'm not going to let you despise my youth. You're not going to talk down to me. Is that what Paul is telling him to do? Is he telling him here to just discount them because they discount me? Or is he telling telling Timothy, don't let anybody despise your youth, so make sure that you appeal to these folks. Tell them what they want to hear. Or at least be accommodating to them. The solution for Timothy being despised as a young evangelist was not in Timothy himself. Could he do anything to change his age? Could he make adjustments of that? You know, how many of us would make adjustments if we could adjust our age? Nothing you can do about that. I remember going to a place and preaching one time for the idea that I might come there and be a full-time evangelist at a congregation, and they came away with the idea that finally it came away with the conclusion that I was too young. I don't get that much anymore, but they decided at that time that I was too young. And I thought to myself, what can I do about that? (laughs) And I was like, do about that. What could Timothy do about his age? Well, there wasn't much he could do about that. But there was something he could do about being despised as a young person preaching the gospel. And that's what Paul's solution focuses on. He says, be an example to the believers. Paul's solution focused on something that Timothy could control. He could live as a mature person even though he was considered to be younger. He could exemplify the character of God's words and the character of Christ himself in his life. He could be an example. Not just an example to the world, but what Paul presents here to Timothy, he'd be an example to other believers. Now I want you to notice that Paul's answer here is rooted in his relationship to Jesus. And that happens so many times when Paul will present a problem or the apostle will present a problem to us that's a spiritual problem and the solution to that problem is not found, not found in me. It's not found in what I can do right or what I can do wrong. It's found in whether or not I have a relationship to God and whether or not I'm fulfilling that relationship to God. It was not about Timothy, nor was it about Paul. You know, he could have said, Timothy, just tell him that you're with me. Don't let them make fun of you. Don't let them despise you. You're my guy. I've had you all along. Tell them how long you've been with me. That's not what he tells Timothy. He doesn't say, drop my name. He says, if you want to be able to deal with this aspect of being despised as a young evangelist, then you need to live up to what you preach. 
You need to be an example of what you're saying. If we want people to accept what you say, then live it. And they'll not be able to despise you. So this is how you get respect you need. You live before Christians like Christ lived before Christians. And you be an example to them. The Greek word tupos, which is translated example here, means a die cast, a stamp, a model after which something is to be patterned. So it assumes the aspect of something that's as it ought to be. So you've got a model and you're going to make this thing according to the model. You put a stamp down and it makes the exact image from which it came. So the idea of tupos means a pattern to follow. And that goes back to my question that began the lesson. Do you consider your life before Christ in that perspective? That God wants me to be a tupas? He wants me to be a, an example to others? He wants me to be someone that, that other people would follow. Now we all know that we all need to follow Jesus. And again, that very word is used to describe that Jesus is an example for us. But Paul presents this in the life of Timothy himself. That he is to be this example the Puritan Thomas Brooks said, example is the most powerful rhetoric. That's an interesting way of looking at it. That being an example is a powerful way to talk. But the practical element of personal obedience makes or breaks the works of preaching. That I either live it or I don't. And it doesn't make a difference how my words flow and how powerful I can say it. If I can't live it, then that destroys the ability of individuals to be Believers. If an example is not there, then the words lose their force. Not only in the ability of a person to understand what's being said. I remember the math, you know, the, the math problem, the math teacher saying, okay, this is what you do, X goes Y, this goes Y. What are you talking about? And then she'd write on the board and say, now I'm going to give you an example, and you work the example. And after I worked the example, I sort of got it. Never could have understood it without the example. So there's a sense in which seeing someone live it out helps me to understand what it means. And I've seen that in my own life. I've seen women who submitted themselves to the leadership of their husbands. Of parents who sacrificed for their children. And though as a young person I thought, what's that mean? What is that, how does that practically play out in my life? To be submissive. To not provoke my children to wrath. And then I'd watch a father who understood that. Who disciplined their children without exciting rebellion. Heart of the child. And said, now I know what that means. Now I know how that example, that the example has made that possible for me to understand it. But there's also the aspect that in the personal evangelist life, or even my life as someone who serves God and wants to teach others, if the words are all that's there, if there is no example, or if there's a negative example, then the words lose all their force. If the example is there, then the words carry the weight of authenticity. Now I know that's what's being said, and now I know the power of what's being said. And so it conveys a powerful message. So it doesn't make any difference if it's coming from the life of someone who's old, someone who has gray hair, or black hair, or no hair. person's living it. And that's what Paul said. You have to be an example. You know, the New Testament says a lot about that. We may not necessarily make the application to it as much as we should, but the New Testament speaks often about the imperative of the role of an example. To the Corinthians, Paul wrote, I exhort you therefore be imitators of me. We say, well, wait, wait, I thought we were supposed to imitate Jesus. How, how can Paul say he's supposed to imitate him? Well, Paul was a follower of it. He imitated Jesus. So if you imitated Paul, you imitated Jesus. But the whole idea was that this is a, a powerful element of the teaching process Paul could not have left that out 
except to say that you must live what I'm living. You must imitate me because I'm living what I'm teaching. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, Brethren, join in following my example. Observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. He says later on in chapter 4, The things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace shall be with you. The writer of Hebrews exhorted his readers to remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the result of their conduct and imitate their faith. He was talking about the practical aspect of looking at a person's life and realizing that the very purpose that they're doing that is not just to obey God, but to set an example for me. That that's what leaders do. They don't just tell people what to do, they do it. And then people follow them down that very pathway. And of course, the greatest example of that is Jesus himself. And so Peter says that Jesus has left an example that we should follow in his steps. And then the context of that is not just the aspect that Jesus went here or there or taught on this subject or that subject, but in the context is that Jesus suffered. That he was willing to suffer for the cause of what he was teaching. So he lived it. So all Christians then are to pattern themselves after the steps of Jesus. Timothy's life then was to be a pattern for all believers and Paul wanted to know that up front. Now, there are two lines of thinking in this passage where he says that to be an example of believers or he's to be an example to believers. And from what I understand, different translations translate that phrase differently and I don't know how, how dogmatic the, the original grammar is. I don't know that I could know that. But it's interesting to me that both thoughts certainly are in play here. That one feeds off the other. That what he's telling Timothy is that you are called to follow a pattern and you are called to be a pattern for other people. You're to show an example of what it means to be a believer and as you do that, you are to be a pattern to those other individuals who are believers so that we show a pattern to each other of how to follow. That's why it's so tragic, you see, when the person who's doing the leading or doing the teaching is not living in it. It's disruptive to the whole process as well. Well, in what way is it to be a to be a leader? He'd be a leader, or to be an example. He'd be an example in his speech. You know, preachers and teachers need to learn how to say the right word, right? Well, certainly that's true, and we might very well, as preachers or teachers, we might study the aspect of being able to speak well, so that we say the right word when we stand up to teach. But I'm convinced that Paul's not referring to the words of Timothy in a public forum. He's talking about Timothy's private conversations. Nothing reveals to us more quickly and more decisively who we are to other individuals than the way that we talk and the things that we say. We can very well betray our very character and efforts to teach by saying the wrong words or saying words at the wrong time, by having speech that's ungodly. And so Paul says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth but what is good good for necessary edification that may impart grace to the hearers. So it's not all about what I want to say or what I have the right to say. It's how my words fall on the ears of others to whom I'm trying to teach and edify and build up. So James warns us that the tongue is a a fire that can do great damage. And you see it's an uncontrollable force in our life that we have to always strive to submit. Let's be an example in his conduct. The word conduct here Anastrophe means behavior or manner of life. Timothy needed to exhibit this aspect of an example in what he did and the choices that he made, the behavior of his own life. In James chapter 3, verse 13, James makes an interesting connection. Who among you is wise and understanding? 
Who's the smart person? Who's the person who knows what to do? Let him show by his good behavior the deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. If he claims to be wise, let him live it out. So if Timothy was going to impart wisdom and counsel to other people, Paul says what you first have to do is you have to show them by what you're doing that you know what you're talking about. Be an example in conduct. Peter often spoke of the place of personal conduct and evangelism. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as an evildoer, they may an account of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. So you live it. So even though they want to try to say bad things about you and slander you, they don't agree with what you're saying, they can't dismiss the fact, they can't despise the fact that you're actually living it in your own life. He says, keep a good conscience to those so that the things in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Sensing that the idea of shame there is, the, is closely linked to the word or despise, the aspect of, of shaming someone. And this kind of flips on its end. You see, Paul's solution is if you live right and you follow the conduct that you ought to follow and set an example, they're the ones who now are despised and shamed because they can't discount it. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, if we could get our minds around that particular admonition, how should I act in life? You have to live in such a way that it, mo- that, that it, it modifies in a rightful way the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think about that. What if others, you see, never heard what I said what if I, st- I stood up here and all you would see is my mouth moving? And some of you have ear problems. Maybe that's what you did see. All you saw was my mouth. You never heard the words. All you could look at is what I was living. What if all that anybody could even know about your religion and your convictions is not what you said. All they could look at is your life. Where would it lead them? To what end would you be an evangelist for Christ? Would it show them who Christ was? You see, our conduct is not just a reflection on us. It's a reflection on the body of Christ. It's a reflection on Jesus Himself. And Satan has done a very good job in the the mind of the world of discounting Christ through the ungodly conduct of those who claim to serve Christ. And that's tragic. But he says also, you be an example in love. Paul told Timothy earlier, the goal of our instruction is love from pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. He's saying, this is why we teach the commandments of God, so people can learn how to love. The the message would be motivated by a genuine love for others, a concern for the spiritual welfare of others. That if anything that shines through in the life of the Christian, it ought to be love. Jesus says, by that will the world know that you're my disciple, by the love that you have for one another. So if that's missing, then it makes our words pretty hollow. If we stand up and we talk about and preach about loving people, but we don't do anything for those people, or we have no desire to serve one another, or we don't practically get involved in the serving of other individuals. So love needs to be integrated into Paul and Timothy's words so that others could see it. He'd be an example of love in the life of others. You know, Jesus didn't just impress people with his knowledge, nor did he berate them with the truth that he knew that they didn't know. It says in Matthew chapter 9 that he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. That he loved them. And they knew it. They recognized his love for them. And so no one can preach like the good shepherd if they don't love the sheep. And I think that's certainly what calls us to this aspect of being an example of love. The passage 
that I think is impressive, and that is, is Paul's statement in First Thessalonians chapter two. How does a preacher describe his ministry to the people that he's ministered to, to the people that he's preached to? This is how Paul describes his ministry. He says, "But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so." Even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. We didn't do it for the money. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. We didn't exercise our authority over you because God gave us authority. He says, but we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. There was one thing that shined through in the, in the ministry of the Apostle Paul among the Thessalonians is that they recognized without a doubt this fellow cares about us. He loves us. And so what's that mean? I mean, they listened to what he had to say. It opens up the whole arena of his credibility when he's an example in love. Other, other translations of this passage real quickly mention the aspect of being an example in spirit. Some new, trans, new translations leave out the word spirit in this list. Some see this as a reference to a person's passions or emotions because the word pneuma sometimes is used to describe that. A preacher must always have his emotions under his control. He must be an example of how people ought to control their emotions. But the word spirit also refers to a disposition of a person. We talked about that when we talked about Caleb, who was a person of a different spirit. One author describes the use of that term here as the disposition of heart that causes the servant to want to serve. So, I not only must say the words that people need to hear, but I need to be an example in a desire willingness to actually do them myself and to want to serve them. It points back to the aspect of motivation. What motivates me? Not love of money, not the desire to be praised by men, but rather to be right with God. So as an example of a spirit that doesn't give up, doesn't quit. I have to show that. And then he says, be an example in faith. The faith here, I believe, is not simple belief. Timothy certainly needs to be someone who evidenced the aspect of his uh, 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 believing what God said. He's been preaching what God says. But I believe it's more to the aspect of trust or faithfulness. That Timothy was to be an example in faith in the sense that he was not to give up. There were troublesome times coming. What Paul described earlier in this very chapter is perilous time when people wouldn't listen to the truth. Wouldn't it be easy to just to quit and say it's not worth it? He... Timothy was to be someone who would lead the way through unswerving faith. And if he didn't give up, then people would be more inclined to listen to what he had to say and not despise his youth. Think about Hymenaeus and Alexander who suffered, Paul says, they suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. What's that mean? They crashed on the rocks. They started out well, started on the journey, maybe things going that way, but they crashed on the rocks. Well, what's their faith worth now? That their, sink, their ship is sunk. You see, that's what Paul said Timothy cannot be. And then he says an example in purity. The Greek word for purity is a word that's closely linked to the aspect of holiness. <coughs> Hagnea means moral cleanness or moral virtue. This thing that Paul also uses this word later on to describe Timothy's relationship to the women of the congregation when he says, do not sharply rebuke an older person. This is 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 1 and 2. Do not sharply rebuke an older person, but rather appeal to him as a father, to younger men as brothers, to older women as mothers, and to younger women as sisters in all purity. Paul telling young Timothy, this is how you got to relate to people in the congregation. Those older men, they're like your fathers. You treat them with respect. 
The older women, they're like your mothers. You give them honor. Listen to their, their counsel and advice. Don't discount them. And the younger men, they're your brothers. You stand beside them. You don't desert them. And the younger women, they're your sisters. You treat them as sisters in all purity. That's pretty good advice, isn't it? The standpoint of my, uh, my, uh, uh, someone's relationship to other individuals. And so he uses this word again to tell Timothy, you must be an example of that. You must be an example of moral purity. And that can be rather challenging for young preachers and teachers today in a society in which sexual images and sexual encounters are so easily accessible for people today. It's easy for young people to get caught up in all of that. And so Paul tells, if you do that, if you're not a person that's pure in your own life, people are going to despise your youth and despise the message that you teach. But if you are set an example in purity and you're above board in all of those things and you take great you see great care to not be involved in things of impurity, even the perception of impurity in your life, and you open up the environment in which individuals will listen to what you have to say. Because example is the most powerful rhetoric. So the value of a godly life cannot be underestimated in any way. We have to certainly recognize that God wants us to teach the truth, but our ability to teach the truth relies upon our willingness to live the truth. Preacher's worth ought to be considered not only in the light of what he says, but also in the light of what he does. Thank you for your attention this morning. What I find interesting as we look at this one verse is that it can't be isolated from the context of the passages that are around it and what Paul counsels Timothy about in the words that are before and the words that follow. In the words that follow, Paul provides more counsel to Timothy towards the goal of godliness how he ought to be able to teach the gospel successfully. He says, give attention to reading, to meditation, to exhortation. Give attention to doctrine. Use what God has given you. Don't discount or treat lightly the gift that's within you that's provided by God. And commit yourself wholly to it. Live it out. Now what I want to notice about that from the standpoint of, you know, what I do notice about that from the standpoint of what the context, the purpose of these words is that's pretty simple, isn't it? There are no bold campaigns or market strategies here. How can a young man be successful? How can a young woman be successful in expounding the gospel to others? How can people be influential in presenting the gospel of Christ to people that are not Christians? What Paul tells Timothy is applicable, is it not? And it's not market strategy. It's not the aspect, you see, of we've got to get a campaign together and find out what people will listen to and what they won't listen to. Paul says, you just live what God's given you. And you live it out in your life. You commit yourself wholly to it. If you're going to preach meekness, then be meek. If you're going to preach love, then exhibit love. If you're going to tell people they need to obey God, then obey God yourself. If you expect people to sacrifice, then be out in front of them as sacrificing first for, your, for God in your own life. Because Satan has no answer for that, does he? He has no answer for that. He might very well have theological arguments he can put out there and substitutions for the, for the blessings of God that people might be, be drawn to or that people might be appealed to. But when we see people that just live their convictions and that are willing to sacrifice the, for the cause of Christ, women who raise their children in, with great suffering and, and godliness to bring them up in the, in, in the ways of God, individuals that, do, that commit themselves to assembling with the saints and reading the Word of God and memorizing Scripture and being honest with their fellow man and being willing to sacrifice for the cause of Christ when things get tough. Satan has no answer for that. There's no counter to that. 
That's why Jesus' life was such a successful campaign against the assault of Satan. When it came right down to it, Jesus went about doing good. And he obeyed God in every regard. And so what Paul's telling Timothy and what Paul tells me is that follow him. Just follow him. You don't want people to despise what you're saying. You want people to look up to you and be credible among the people that you talk to. Follow him. Be an example for all believers. Thank you for your attention. And we want you to be a follower of Jesus. And currently that's rooted in your willingness of your heart and faith to be obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You turn away from the wickedness and turn off of the path that leads to destruction and be willing to follow God. Repent of your sins. Confess that Jesus Christ is your only Savior, that He will be your guide and your King. Be baptized in water for forgiveness of sins. Be immersed. Be buried with Him. And rise and walk in the newness of life. Can we help you do that? Let's stand and sing.